Um, just out of curiosity, uh, did anyone feel like the time of silence right now was uh, too short? Good. Anyone think it was too long? Uh, you don't have to. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Isn't this fun to go into the Old Testament? Beginning in verse 1. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot in the booted warrior, pardon me, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel and for fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Recently I read a Christian's rant uh, and it was about the secularization of Christmas. Um, Specifically, uh, the, the message was that Xmas, that is to spell Christmas Xmas, is uh, part of a great conspiracy to secularize Christmas. Now, <clears throat> this person argued, keep Christ in Christmas. Uh, don't let it degenerate into Xmas. I don't think that the person who wrote this rant knew that it was Christians who first used the X in Xmas, and that's because the X actually is the Greek letter chi, which is the first letter in the word Christ. And so the chi stands for Christ. So let's be good Xians and, and keep the X in Xmas. Christmas is our nation's favorite national Christian holiday, but it's also the easiest holiday, even for us, to be distracted from God. We don't have to change our greeting to happy holidays um, with all that goes on, we still lose track of Jesus. And even if we were to call it the Jesus Day, we'd still lose track of him, the way we, we celebrate and, and treat Christmas. It's the most horrible time of the year. Um, <laughs> in, in certain respects, definitely not a, as a believer who, who can maintain our vision of Christ, but we find that challenging. So we go to Isaiah this morning, and uh, I know I'm early. If, if you follow the liturgical calendar, that is the, the church year, uh, I know I'm jumping the gun. Uh, Advent does not begin until next week. Uh, you know, the, the, maybe you don't. If you're Roman Catholic or have an Episcopal background or even Presbyterian, you might know that the church year is broken into seasons. It begins with Epiphany in January, moves into Lent, that lovely uh, period of fasting something, uh, then into Easter, 
And then the very long season of Pentecost goes from, from Easter all the way up to next week. And uh, it's sometimes called the ordinary time of the year. Uh, but it's a time of, of, of living out uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and, and seeing what that means in our everyday lives. And then we come to Advent. Advent means the arrival. And uh, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ, uh, the babe born in Bethlehem. So I'm going back to Isaiah chapter 9 for a reason. Um, this is a very ancient look forward into uh, the, a coming work of God, a great, a great thing's happening. But there's something we need to know about biblical prophecy uh, before we go on. The word prophecy does not mean prediction. And most of the prophecy in scripture is not prediction. So if you think that every line written by the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures is predicting something future, you're way off the mark and you're not hearing what's really there. And not only that, when there is prediction in scripture, the message is to people living now. And it's, it's telling us that we should live in a certain way. We should live with a, a certain consciousness or understanding. All right? Um, yes, it will have application to people in the future, these events that have not yet occurred. But the message is always to people standing around the prophet. The prophet is communicating something to them. Uh, communicating hope communicating uh, correction or, or warning. It's always, whenever we read it, we need to hear what it has to say to us in the here and now, and not just tuck it away and say, maybe someday I'll need this. Um, what prophecy means is inspired speech. In fact, it's not always speech. There are instances of people being inspired uh, by God's spirit and playing musical instruments. This is in, uh, for example, First Chronicles chapter 25. The, the temple musicians are inspired to play in an inspired way. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's skillful, and it's rehearsed, but it's also inspired. And, and you can hear the difference between a beginner piano player and an and a accomplished pianist. Right? You know, one's just like playing the notes and getting the notes in the tempo right. The other is making the piano sing. When there is prophetic prediction, we cannot imagine what that future will actually look like. All right? So if we think we know that the scorpions of the book of Revelation are helicopters called stingers, um, we're probably wrong. All right? we, you can't, it, it's not that easy to take a prediction and say, well, this is exactly what it's going to look like when it's fulfilled. Even the prophets did not know. God revealed to Isaiah uh, a future that was so unbelievable. Isaiah said, truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. In other words, this is so inexplicable, so unlikely to happen, that all I can say is, is that you're hidden, and this whole promise that you're giving us is hidden from us. And God will come back to Isaiah, by the way, in Isaiah 45, and he'll say, my word's not hidden. Yeah, maybe, maybe this seems impossible to you, but I don't hide my word. It's, it's revealed. That's what I've given you is my word. Jeremiah complained to God. Jeremiah's locked up in a prison. The armies of Babylon are outside of Jerusalem about to break down the gates and conquer the city. And while Jeremiah is locked up in prison, he says, you have said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money 
and call in witnesses. Although the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. In other words, you're telling me to buy property in a land that's not even going to belong to us anymore. It makes no sense. Your, your prophetic word to me. And God explains to him, don't worry. The bill of sale will be good sometime in the future. Maybe like 70 years later after their exile in Babylon is complete. But it makes no sense to, to him at the time. Habakkuk, uh, God tells him, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. And indeed, Habakkuk is flabbergasted by what God tells him. And I see him going away sulking. That's my addition to the text. I see him going away sulking, and he says, I'm just going to sit in my watchtower and wait to receive an explanation from God. Because as soon as God reveals to him what he's going to do, Habakkuk argues with him. How can that be, God? How can you use a very, very corrupt people to punish a less corrupt people? It makes no sense. And don't you know what's going to happen when the, the Babylonians defeat us? They're not going to praise you. They're going to praise their military gods. They're going to praise the nets they use to catch us, the weapons they use to destroy us. It makes no sense. So a, a lot of times God speaks into the future, but it's incomprehensible to people at the time. And it's stays incomprehensible to some degree. The, the future, the, the fulfillment was future. And what that means is it's going to be at a different time from the prophet and in a different context. And that as it arrives in that different time and different context, it will be different from the way the prophet imagines it. The, the, the prophet can see it one way, but how it's fulfilled is changed from the prophet's view to the reality of that time, that new context. Gosh, I ha you have expressions like you're not getting any of this. Um, that's okay. That, really, it's okay. While I talk, think lovely thoughts. Now, use your imagination and go to beautiful places and then you know, come back at the end. Helmut Thielke, he's one of my favorite, all-time favorite theologians, said, God interprets his promises by the way he fulfills them. So we're only going to know what the prophecy meant when we see it fulfilled. Oh, that's what he meant. Oh, okay, now it makes sense. Right? But up until that moment, it doesn't quite make sense. And some prophecies have dual fulfillments. Uh, Peter gives a great example of this in Acts chapter uh, 2, his first big sermon. An audience of like 3,000, yeah, that's no way to start, but you know, here he is, he's thrust into it. And he quotes the prophet Joel, which talks about God pouring his spirit out on all people and then moves on to talk about the end of the world. And Peter says, what you see right now is what God promised. He's pouring his spirit out on all of us. But the world didn't end. That part was for later. Jesus read from Isaiah when he was in Nazareth, his hometown, uh, and in the synagogue he was invited to read. And he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61. And he began reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to, to preach the gospel to the poor, to open uh, prison doors, to set the captives free, give sight to the blind. And he reads up until a point, and then he stops. And what follows is the end of the world stuff. But Jesus stopped before he read that part. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it to the leader of the synagogue, and he said, today what you just heard is fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he says, Isaiah is talking about me. And here I am. But, but the end of the world was not right then. So Jesus left off that part. 
You see, Peter was a, a novice. Uh, he didn't know to leave off the next part. So uh, he should have stopped sooner. But uh, there you have it. Now, what amazes me uh, about this is how quickly the disciples connected Old Testament scriptures to Jesus Christ. Um, like I said in, in uh, Peter's first message, he quotes the Old Testament scriptures, I think, at least three times. He quotes Joel, uh, he quotes David, maybe a couple of quotes by David. Um, but it's like uh, once Jesus rose from the dead, it just started coming to them. Now when they heard the scriptures read or they read the scriptures for themselves, they're seeing Jesus in, in so much of it. Matthew reported the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he came into the area of the Galilee. And, he, and then he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And he quoted the passage here in uh, chapter 9 that I just read. Uh, the light coming to those who are sitting in darkness. Right? So he saw that what I read was talking about Jesus already. Now, this is first century stuff. And, uh, and so here we are. We've got this prophecy that the New Testament sees Jesus fulfilling. What does God promise his people in this passage? I would say on the one hand, it's pretty typical of the message of Isaiah and the prophets who are given visions of the future. Um, God promised Israel a future that was very different from their present experience. In fact, right away, it's a difference between the earlier times in which he treated these people with contempt and later on, where the future is going to be glorious. So it's past and present being contrasted here. You've had it bad, but it's going to become wonderful. They had lived in darkness. And this is a spiritual darkness, but it's also a social darkness. It's, a, it's been oppressive and, and, and hard to, to eck out a life uh, in their situation. But it's going to change. Uh, Walter Brugman, who... Um, wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Isaiah, said, light is regularly linked to the coming of Yahweh's glory. That is, to, to the visible evidence of Yahweh's splendor, majesty, and sovereignty. God reveals his glory and majesty, uh, splendor, and sovereignty. And that's what Matthew saw coming into Galilee in the person of Jesus Christ. He saw the light of God, the glory of God's splendor, majesty, and sovereignty. God promised a time when the nation would grow and prosper. And the outstanding characteristic of this new situation was a pervasive joy, a, a, a gladness like at harvest time, and, and a uh, Rejoicing as when um, they've experienced a victory in war. The people would know to attribute this newfound joy to God's presence. That <coughs> Yahweh is among us again and now all these good things are happening for us. It will be a time when they'd be rescued from their oppression. You know, Israel's monarchy that began with King Saul, followed by King David, followed by Solomon, followed by his son Rehoboam, and during Rehoboam's reign, right at the beginning of it, Israel split in two. In the south it was Judah, in the north it was Israel. Well, that monar monarchy that began with King Saul ended with King Zedekiah in Judah. The northern nation, Israel, had already fallen. It was, it was gone. And 
pretty well eradicated. Judah survived the conquest of Babylon. I mean, to this day, they survive. You know that, that not all Israel is Jewish. Only the tribe of Judah is Jewish. Otherwise, Israel is, is, is Israel. It's you know, the 11 other tribes. Uh, so the Jews survived the exile, the, the Judeans of the south. In the north, they didn't. Towards the end of Israel's monarchy, what I say, it lasted 400 years approximately. Towards the end of their monarchy, they lived under the constant threat of invasion. It came from the north, it came from the east, it came from the south. It could be uh, Syria, it could be Babylon, it could be uh, Egypt. Besides that, um, neighboring nations would form raiding parties. These, these mercenaries would go into towns of Judah and attack the people, maybe wipe them out and, and loot them. Uh, the more powerful nations that conquered them would, or if not completely conquer, well, pretty much, uh, at least subdue them, would demand that they pay tribute to them. And the tribute was expensive. So, you know, you know the average farmer is hoping to, to get ahead a little bit. Well, he's never going to get ahead because everything that he makes, everything that he grows, is going to be taxed heavily to pay tribute to this other nation. And their soldiers were always close enough to be a, a perpetual threat. But all of that oppression would end. God would provide uh, peace, a, a victory for them. What a future. At the heart of these future changes was a person, an individual. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. I'm going to read that again, but can you hear the difference between these two lines? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The child is born. The son is given. God told David that David would have a son and that God would establish his throne after David and his son would build the temple and that God would smile on him. God would establish his kingdom. And he said, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. God takes David's descendant and says, he will be my son. And in the book of Hebrews and, and other New Testament passages, they saw this as a re reference to Jesus. Well, Israel began looking for a Messiah who was a descendant of King David. The son of David, the son of God, the one who would take them into this new situation of peace and prosperity. On that first Christmas night, Angels announced to shepherds. Now we're talking about you know, the, the top of the order communicating to the lowest denominator in society. Angels to shepherds telling them of good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there's been born for you a savior who is Messiah, the Lord. So the son is given to us. The son pre-existed the birth of the child. The child was born. The son, eternal with the father, was given. And the government shall rest on his shoulders. That just sounds so good. The government shall rest on his shoulders. That is, he will have responsibility for running the nation. And we won't have to talk about bipartisan cooperation uh, because there'll just be one people. And imagine one people really united, indivisible, under God, for liberty and justice forever. I mean, you know, imagine one people fully united 
what that nation could do. It will be up to him to bring justice and righteousness and peace, to bring an end to crime and lawlessness. How how the heck can you do this? You can only accomplish this if you can change the human heart of every human. I mean, think about it. There will be no end to the growth of his rule in either space or time. It will just keep going. It will cover the globe. And I think probably keep going beyond that. Okay, there's one more statement here I want to emphasize. And, and that's the very last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah is, is um, fond of that term, Lord of hosts. He likes talking about God that way. Yahweh Sabaoth. Um, his host or his armies. It could be his heavenly armies of angels. Sometimes the host is the host of Israel, Israel's armies. Sometimes the, the host is the host of heaven, the stars and, and the moon and the sun all will fight on God's behalf or at his command. He has you know, command over all these forces that he can use to bring about the changes that he's promised. And it's his zeal, um, and I would say his passion, uh, that's going to make all of this happen. <sighs> Only God can create a perfect government. Humans are totally incompetent and incapable of accomplishing this. We've had tens of thousands of years to do it. And this is where we are today. We've failed. This is not something that's naturally going to evolve. Uh, Humankind will not gradually mature into it. We'll not keep getting better and better and better until, you know... Uh, and it's not going to come through um, genetic engineering, through um, taking all the bad people out and uh, turning them into soylent green. Uh, <laughs> it will come as an eruption from something beyond us. It will be an act of God. The scriptures are really clear on this, that hi- history doesn't um, gradually find its way into this promised future that the, the verdict has already been determined regarding humankind and that it will be God uh, erupting into our world to make radical. these changes. It is radical. It's unbelievable. See, it's not from within. It comes from beyond and without. <clears throat> okay. Now let's make that jump from prophecy to to fulfillment. Uh, Israel could hear in Isaiah's speech what all of us can hear, what's so easy to hear, that God's going to intervene in human history, that he's going to put an end to all that's wrong. He's going to create and develop and nurture all that's good and beautiful and right. And life on earth will become a utopian paradise. It's the only utopia that anyone could possibly believe in. It's described poetically in Isaiah 11. I'm sure this will sound familiar. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion will feed together, and a little boy will lead them pastoral, idyllic, serene. But what Israel could not see was how the carpenter's son from Nazareth could be the fulfillment of that vision. We know Jesus. We know his brothers. We know his family. Nathaniel, when he first hears of Jesus, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And to see Jesus humble, the way he describes himself, meek, lowly, to see Jesus, 
you know, most people who saw him could not believe this is the Messiah. In fact, even the disciples uh, had a few problems with things that Jesus said about himself. They expected something different from him. They expected something more along the lines of defeat our enemies, prosper our nation, bring perpetual peace. And, and they did not see Jesus doing that. From his appearance, they could not picture him in this role. Though it's obvious you know, for us that this is what Isaiah's talking about, right? How in the world can Matthew say, and, and Jesus coming to Galilee was to fulfill what Isaiah said about bringing the light of God into this area. What happened was that after Jesus' resurrection, his disciples were given a new understanding of scripture. Now when they read it, it was just like he said, because he told them, remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? And Jesus takes them through the whole scripture, uh, Moses and the prophets, showing them how they all spoke about him. And he said, didn't the scripture say that the Messiah would have to suffer and die? And I'm sure at that point they're going, no, we never read that. <laughs> Where does the Bible say that? Okay, so then he starts, so he gives them this Bible study from Genesis to Malachi. And when they get to, to where they were going and he disappears, they say, weren't our hearts burning within us? as they talked with us, on, because things were coming to them and they were saying, yeah, yeah, okay, I can see how that's Jesus. Oh, yeah, oh, of course. We, we've been on Israel tours with um, Jewish non-Christian tour guides and, and people on the tour bus more than once have asked me, how can, how can he read Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus? And, and Paul has an explanation for that. Um, and it's, it's not that hard if you're steeped in Old Testament scripture and you haven't met the resurrected Jesus. He opens eyes and, and opens understanding. And you see things like you've never seen before. So they realized that what he was going to do one day on a worldwide um, scale he was already doing in individual lives. What he taught them to pray, our Father in heaven, may your name be revered, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They realized his kingdom had come to them. They were revering his name. And his will was being done in their lives. That the things that he told them to pray for globally was happening to them individually. And that this was the work of the Messiah. It, it, it could be none other than the work of the Messiah. When I pray the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, I like to individualize it myself. Lord, let me revere your name. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in my life. Let's, let's reinforce that every time we pray it. That it, it's happening now for individuals. But we're praying that it will happen one day for everyone. This was the good news that they shared with others. That the world could be different and people could be different. People could experience peace and an end to their own oppression. It doesn't mean that the, the Romans are going to say, oh, so sorry, um, have we been a bother? Let, let's just leave. We'll just go and leave you to... It's not, not that they're going to experience an end to military oppression, but to their own feeling of oppression because of the presence of Rome. That Rome would still be there, but they wouldn't feel oppressed by it anymore. It wouldn't oppress them because they'd find a new liberty in God. Paul could write to slaves in the Roman Empire and, uh, and encourage them to not feel oppressed, even though they were, they were a greatly oppressed, typically greatly oppressed class. There's liberty, there's freedom 
from this world and what it does to us. Um, we are not so attached to it any longer. So we can pass through the Christmas season and keep close contact with Jesus because we're not going to be distracted or oppressed by it. Something is going on within us. And whenever we hear Christmas, we hear Christ. We hear fulfillment of prophecy. We have, a, we have this renewed resurrection view of things or perspective on things. The wonderful counselor. He shall be called wonderful counselor. There's this collection of terms that Isaiah uses, and I'm I'm sure that all of them are very meaningful. Um, But we're able to personalize these now. He's my prince of peace. He's my everlasting father. Right? He's my wonderful counselor. In 1987, and I don't even remember how long I've been praying this, but in 1987, I was asking God to give me a credible guide to lead me into understanding Jesus better. Now, this came out of a class I audited at uh, Fuller Seminary. Uh, a mentor of mine was teaching the class. And uh, in it, he had, during the class, he had Chuck Kraft speak. Uh, Chuck Kraft was a theologian and missiologist. That is, he, he taught missions and cross-cultural communication and anthropology. Brilliant man. Uh, to this day, I love and appreciate him. Plus, he's got a great first name. But, uh, but Chuck Kraft um, was explaining the biblical theology of the kingdom of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in this class on signs and wonders. Signs, wonders, and church growth, it was called. And um, he was talking about how when people discover truths for themselves, it's more meaningful to them and they own it and are likely to remember it longer. And that Jesus' use of parables encouraged people to make discoveries for themselves. He didn't just hand them information. He led them into it by way of story, by way of parable and analogy. And, um, and he was talking about then the new paradigms that the disciples had when they heard the parables and understood them, that it changed their way of seeing the world. And, and paradigm was a very popular word at the time. Um, and so um, I, I asked him in, in class that night, uh, Dr. Kraft, how can we open our minds to the parables in such a way that we really embrace those new paradigms? How do we get from here to there? And he paused for a moment, and he said, well, a credible witness is helpful. In other words, someone who's already taken this path and crossed this bridge, who's come back to help you find your way and cross the bridge, can be, someone who knows, someone who can witness to you their own process. And if, if they're credible, if you trust them, then this will help you, you grow spiritually. So I started praying, God, give me a credible witness in my life who can mentor or direct or enlighten me. And I know I prayed it for at least a year, and no one showed up. You know, the student was ready, but the teacher didn't come, so don't believe that. Um, well, actually, that's not quite true. One day I was reading in the Psalms, And God was saying uh, to Israel through the psalmist, here's what I want to do for you. And he said, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I'll watch you and give you direction. And 
wonderful counselor became personalized to me. You see? That, that Jesus became that wonderful counselor. Years later, in 2004, I met a human credible guide. And for two years, he walked me into a closer place with God than I'd ever been before. And I, I did not know that this was possible. I hoped that it was. I didn't know that it was. Two weeks before his death, I had my last conversation with him. And uh, it was, he, he was dying of cancer, so um, he wasn't in a lot of pain, but he was very weak. So he had maybe one or two good hours a day. And this was in his cell as the day was ending and the shadows were getting long in his room. And we would talk some, and then we'd have periods of silence where we'd just sit together. And then we'd talk a little bit more in periods of silence. And I drew wisdom from that meeting as I had all of our meetings. And at some point in frustration, I said, Father Romuald, why do you think that God considers it all right to take you out of my life right now when I've gained so much from you and I have so much more to gain? And he smiled and said, Chuck, I am not your teacher. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. And he will provide whoever is necessary to lead you on. Wonderful counselor. Personalized to me. How does this come to us? All these things that, that Jesus is, all these things that Isaiah describes. How do we ask God to put this gift under the Christmas tree? Most often, when Paul described the Christian life, he used two words, in Christ. The Christian is a person who is in Christ. Sometimes there are variations, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in the Lord. But it's always, it's always in Christ that describes who we are. He explains that this position in Christ changes the condition of our lives. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. This can only happen in Christ. What he's talking about here, this, this change, this past is past, the, the new has come, the new creation is this person. This can only happen in Christ. So quit trying, okay? Because you can't do it. You, you cannot do this. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You understand why that's important now? It's because we are weak and incapable the passion of our God will perform this work in us. I think personally, because I've tried, it takes a lot of contemplating to penetrate what in Christ means. How can I be in Jesus? Is he going to eat me? And, um, I eat him, right, when I take the bread and the wine. How do I get in, you know, I feel like I'm Nicodemus saying, how can these things be? It makes no sense. And I, and I don't know all that it means, to, to be honest with you. I could lie and say, I do know, but I don't. Uh, I, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. Because <laughs> only pastors can know. And I used to be one. <laughs> I, I don't know what all it means. It means that it creates a perimeter or boundary around us. It means that there's something in the atmosphere, in the space around me, more than what I can see. It means being enveloped somehow, embraced in his arms. It's an awareness, a, a consciousness we have. 
I am in Christ, whatever that means. I am in him. It's possible that a dolphin can be in water and not know that he's in water. But if he's out of the water for very long, he knows that. And it's possible that we could be in Christ in a way that we're not fully aware of being in Christ, but when we're out of Christ, we know that. So it is a a consciousness. Maybe uh, St. Patrick's prayer can give us a sense of what in Christ means. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. When Jesus encompasses my life in that way, I am in Christ. I'm being fed his thoughts, I'm being nurtured in him. I'm in him, but he's also in me. Oh, now this gets even trickier. Okay, so we, we can't get there by logic. Um, some things are only possible in Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Some things can only be done in Christ and with Christ in us. Only Christ can can make them happen. Again, if we don't get this, our faith will always be struggle, always be tension, always be weakness and futility. And some people, their whole Christian life is that. It's work, 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 and I'm not getting anywhere. I'm doing everything I'm told to do. I've, I've had a great education from the Pharisees and I know how to go about this. I I know all the Bible I'm supposed to be reading every day, all the prayers I'm supposed to be offering every day, all the acts of charity I'm supposed to be performing and I'm doing it all. You know, you can destroy your health doing it all and not get anywhere because only Christ can get, apart from me you can do nothing. We, we, We don't stand apart from Christ or away from Christ and try to work our way to him. He's in us, and we're in him. And now things can happen. Now things do happen that we're not responsible for. There are some things that grow and develop on their own. You do not have to work every virtue into your life. Some of them will come on their own if you're in Christ, and Christ is in you. That zeal of the Lord will ignite a passion in you. And there will be some things you just cannot do. You're just not interested and you just won't do it. And other things you just have to do because you're in Christ and Christ is in you. Jesus told a parable saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He doesn't make the seed germinate when it's in the soil. He just drops the seed in. And sometime later, he sees the first shoots coming out of the ground, the first sprouts. And and how did that happen? I don't know. I just know that it does. I plant the seed, I water, I I weed, and this is what happens. The same thing with us, that there are some things we're not going to produce in our lives, some growth experience we're not going to accomplish on our own, but plant a seed and watch what grows. Hoist a sail and let the wind carry you. Or light a candle and let it draw someone else to Jesus too. 
Once we're in Christ, there's no more worries about being right with God. No more attempts to try harder. Um, not, that, not attempts that come from us. The Spirit of God will spur us when necessary. But then it will be like a thirst, like a hunger. And not like someone riding on our back, demanding this, demanding that. Where do we start? Well, we've already started, so I probably don't even need to tell you, but I can remind you, and you can do this today, and you can do it tomorrow, and you can do it every day this week. Um, Believe that Jesus is all of this. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Believe that he is all of this and say yes to him. If you say yes to him, that's opening the door for him to live within you. And it's him opening the door to let you live in him. And just keep saying yes to Jesus. I know that there have been times in my life that the Holy Spirit has spoken to me. And I'd like to say, um, I've said, "Um, not right now. And I have said that a lot. But there have been times when I've said no. And I think that God speaks to every person on this planet. And that... We sometimes say yes, and we sometimes say no. But when we learn to always say yes, or as Paul said, when we learn to always say yes and amen, then Christ is in us, and we're in Christ, and we move forward. And, and then we can, then we can leave all the rest up to him. And he will counsel and he'll carry the government of our lives on his shoulders, and he'll be our prince of peace. All things are yours, Paul says. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Would you stand with me, please? I was going to bless you with a benediction. May the Lord keep away all Harleys. But uh, they're gone, so we'll just go back to the normal one. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.